one of the co-founders and CEO of Tails.com, uh, which is the business we started nearly eight years ago. I'm uh, I was 37 when we started, I'm 44 now. You mentioned work-life balance. And for me, actually, I, I find the phrase itself in, inherently implies a contradiction, an opposite. And my dog's barking agreeing, by the way. They're like, yep. Yeah. What about dogs? Do the dogs get yeah. some equity in Tails.com? You know, like... They were like The Apprentice. <laughs> there was no Alan Sugar, but there was this like incredible work ethic. I knew the odds were way stacked against us, but no, it didn't feel like a risk. So welcome, James, to the podcast. It's wonderful to have you here. I wonder if you could start off by just telling our audience a little bit about you and Tails.com. Sure, yeah. Hi, Simon. Great to be here. Thank you for, for uh, inviting me. So I'm, I'm here, I guess, because I'm the, one of the co-founders and CEO of Tails.com. Uh, which is the business we started nearly eight, eight years ago. I'm, uh, I was 37 when we started, I'm 44 now. Uh, I have a, a, a Labrador called Jasper who's sitting just behind me here. We're having a little snooze, you can probably see it, so he stays quiet like that throughout. Um, and then, yeah, I'm father of three daughters, uh, the uh, youngest of which is four and the oldest of which is 10. So, yeah, that has rather coincided with the last few years of starting and scaling a business, which is which has meant, meant that life's been pretty full. And to get away from all of that and just unwind and recharge, I absolutely love mountain biking, which is something I do as much of as I, as I possibly can. Wow. I mean, there's already th loads of things I want to ask you. Um, like, you know, definitely, I guess, a lot of my audience, they, they have kids and the idea of starting a business just sound, sounds insane. So you had, you had I, I'm going to just quickly do the maths here. You, you, you know, when you started the business in 2013, um, you know, you, you, you were, uh, you, you didn't, you were just, your son was two, one or two years old, right? Uh, the youngest then would have been, yeah, about two. And then, uh, and, and there was a third uh that was yet you know will we won't we i suppose probably at that point so yeah it was pretty tough yeah that's, that's i mean it's not um not easy building a business at the at the best of times right but I mean, of course then you have that that struggle of like wanting to spend time with the family and of course with your children but also working how did you manage to combine that work-life balance mystery we always talk about uh, <laughs> yeah well a couple of things look first and foremost it's not that I managed to combine it. It's about having a supportive partner. So in this case, my, my wife. And uh, if it wasn't for was, wasn't for her, there's no way we would I would have been able to play the part that I have at, at Tales.com. And certainly our kids would not have had the uh, you know the early start in life, the quality of early start in life that they have. So we've worked really well, I think, from a I guess a team point of view. It sounds much easier in that aspect. I've not really described it like that, but. Um, it, but it is, and you know, I've I've, I've been able to go and uh, build something and create something with my colleagues at, at Tales.com, and she's uh, definitely done the heavy lifting at home. So that's a big part of it, having a supportive partner. Second, who also believes in and, and is almost as passionate as I am about what we're setting out to build on on the business side of it, uh, and and um, and that's still the case, which is which is great. Um, and the other side of it, you mentioned work-life balance, and for me, actually, I, I find the phrase itself inherently implies a contradiction, an opposite, it's balancing two opposites, as if work and life are two different things that need to be held in balance. And I think the, the healthiest possible way to think about it is that um, it's life. And you're trying to make sure you've got the right mix of different things in life that's fulfilling, and that mix will be different for different people. And work, though, work can be 80% of your life, and that's still in balance, and that is still good. It just depends about who you are, what matters to you, uh, and what stage in life you're at and who you've got around you. So for me, trying to a uh, healthy work-life balance actually starts with trying to be in a mindset that I'm not trying to balance anything. There isn't a yin and a yang and too much of one means too little of the other. I'm just trying to make sure that whatever I'm doing in life, there's enough variety and change and things that excite me and energise me that I go into the next part of life carrying that energy so that I can be better at that as well. And um, yeah, that's uh, so. I, th I think, and for me, that's that's the secret about it. It's maintaining energy. I, I love it, and good message. Couldn't agree more as well. I, I always describe um, the kind of the work-life balance conversation as as basically one week you might be obsessed with the business, and and one week you might have time, therefore, because you obsessed the previous work week about business to have more time with the family. And so there's there's swings and roundabouts, right? And I think that those that try to give themselves this work-life balance perfection will go insane, especially if you're an entrepreneur. And so, and having your, the right partner in life is also a really important message. I mean, it's, 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 I think yeah. it's, it's, for me, it's as important as a co-founder relationship, for example. You've got to have 
have a supportive partner and uh, and I think that's that's crucial I often tell people that I, I personally think I'm successful today because of my partner there's no doubt I would not be successful without her so um, I can relate to your your message I really can well take us back to how the business started again a lot of our listeners dream of starting a business and and tell us how it happened i can see you know looking back at your uh, your impressive history you were uh, head of supply chain operations at innocent drinks which is a great company and and you you gave up well clearly a great company and a great job to go and and, and start this business so tell us how it happened how did it play out well i've always sort of uh, ha- had a sort of hankering to do things slightly differently and then ironically ended up leaving university going to work at Unilever and on the sort of conveyor belt of a, a grad scheme where, where which was actually fantastic training but um, I ended up actually getting feeling a bit bored and wanting to do something different so my wife and I left we'd met at Unilever and, and she worked in HR there and then uh, went traveling in Central and South America uh, and then all, on, uh, from that we just voluntary work as well with an organization called Rally International, International which is incredibly powerful in, in understanding what it's like to work in an organization where there's an absolute clarity around a sense of purpose and all the people there working on it completely bought into that sense of purpose and just motivated every day to put in as much time as possible in, in realizing it and I knew I wanted to find that in the world of work when I, when I got back and did at Innocent Drinks it was time came to move on from Unilever it was a career break for that time in South America we'd rather go back to Unilever going to Innocent Drinks was really a, 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 the, the right next step very uh, fantastic organization to work in again also a very clear sense of purpose so absolutely found that in the workplace at innocent now after seven years there uh being part of this enormous uh, growth journey um I, I was again starting to feel a little bit a bit bored I, I could do my job without it being too challenging there were no, not that many new problems to solve uh which is something that i, I realized that i find quite energizing and motivating is trying to be creative about solving problems and I knew I wanted to start earlier earlier again. So I was looking at various opportunities in early stage businesses, what I, I suppose I describe now as post-series A stage businesses, really, where product market fit has been found and they're starting to prove that it can scale. Um, and then um, Chuck, Chuck Graham, who, who I'd known for a few years, and he was one of the early founders of, of, of a couple of other very successful businesses, um, got, got in touch with me and said, well, I've, I've met this guy, Joe, who's a um, vet, and he's got this idea for this tailored food that's unique to each dog that evolves and changes as the dog ages and we can we think we can produce it for about the same cost as people are paying for standard one size fits all dog food why don't you come and meet joe and see if you want to want to come on board that was in late summer 2013 and when i met graham and i had always got on well uh, never actually worked together but then when i met joe we hit it off I totally bought into the idea uh, and what it, what it was about how it would be better for dogs but crucially better for owners but really hard to do. Nobody was doing that level of customization at mainstream prices. So I just thought it was a fantastic opportunity because we could deliver a game-changing product to consumers. We could solve problems that would be a barrier to entry for others to do it at the pricing we thought we could achieve. Uh, and I'd be doing it alongside people that I, that I would enjoy working with. And funnily enough, those three principles of a customer's going to like it. Is it going to be stimulating and challenging and hard to do? Are you going to do it with people that you that you like and want to work with are three of the most important principles i think for in, in joining any sort of business or venture whether you're starting it or or moving into a bigger company so that's that's really how tales a bit about how tales.com started and and certainly from my perspective and my journey into it so it, so graham um introduces you to joe and you and joe yeah. kind of hit it off and then um you you buy into the model and, and then what happens what's the next step to make a business like that happen well, the next step was was bringing the other people, and Graham, in particular, was already well, well underway with this. And I was, I was one of those people bringing in the other people to to be able to get a business the business started and the skills that we would need. And actually, the one of the biggest challenges with Tales.com and our business model is how complicated it is. We needed to be have quite deep expertise in so many areas, so animal nutrition, um, software side, the, 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 especially back in twenty thirteen, the, the um, the off-the-shelf platforms for e-commerce were pretty much limited to just pretty standard e-commerce. There was only the, the beginnings of decent subscription platforms, but not for a product where every single person got a, essentially one of a different SKU, of an infinite range of SKUs, which is the way that our product, our physical product, the food, it works. Um, then they, so, there's, so even the subscription platform, the front-end website, 
needed to be built from scratch. We were building a manufacturing base ourselves, so quite vertically integrated it as, a, as a business, which is part of uh, the, the way that we can make the margin work, but also the, uh, the defensibility of our model. Um, and so, so we needed to build factory operations software uh, and equipment and machines to do that. So there's that side of it. And actually, dog food is a little bit like the baby food category, and it's a really, really high trust product. That, that you know, it's quite difficult as a as a new brand, particularly in our case as a new business model as well, to win that trust. So having the skills to be able to build a brand and build that relationship, the right type of relationship between your brand and the consumers from the start was important. So we actually there were eight of us who came together to start Test.com, and in those first few 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 weeks and months from when I joined them in end of October thirteen, it was about. Uh, finishing building out that co-founding team at the start. Did it feel like a big risk? Was it, or was there kind of safety in numbers having a team like that? Uh, yes and no. Oh, it, so logically, it seemed like a big risk because I knew the odds were way stacked against us. But no, it didn't feel like a risk because I totally believed in the the the, the idea and the proposition. And as the idea developed into the full proposition totally believed it would be a better way for people to feed their dogs and that customer demand would be genuine uh, and large. Uh, and uh, I really had confidence in the people that I was alongside. So I had enough confidence in myself and my experience that, I, that I'd back myself to solve some of these, these the problems that I'd be responsible for. But I could see the talent around me and that's what really gave me uh, that, that feeling that it wasn't a big risk, we were gonna make it work. And hey, look, it's not, there's no, you know, it's, Lots of entrepreneurs risk a hell of a lot, um, like put everything on the line to start a business. Um, I was in a fortunate position that uh, I'd just come out of Innocent after they had essentially exited Coca-Cola. So I had managed to make some some uh, some return on the equity that I held at Innocent. And so that gave me enough of a cushion to be able to put, yeah, bid into tails.com, but also know that I had a runway at home so that the, my wife, we weren't putting the house on the line. If Tailscom hadn't worked, uh, then I would have needed to go and find another job. Um, but I didn't. I, that wasn't a that was a manageable risk as far as I was concerned. So um, yes, yeah, so I was in a fortunate position where I didn't have to absolutely lay it all on the line financially and could build in a bit of comfort. But you did put your own money in, and you put your time, more valuable thing, I think, or money, your time into the business, right? And was it? I'm just thinking for people that are listening that love the idea of convincing someone like you to join them. I mean, what was the pitch like? Be the CEO, have equity. This is the problem we're solving, and that was enough for you. Was that was that was that how it played? Um, yeah, I think it started with do I do I believe in this? Do I want to do it? After having worked at Innocent, I knew I never would want to work somewhere where I didn't really believe in the product and the value the product would bring to its customers. So yeah, so that was that was one of the boxes. Challengingly interesting problems to solve, great people to work with, and yeah, absolutely, the, the money side's got to be there, whether that's in salary or equity or whatever. For me, that was a, that's, that's more of a hygiene factor. It's definitely important. I dream the dreams of being wealthy and being able to, you know, money not being uh, anything to worry about in life, for sure. But I didn't. I always felt from a like if I'd stayed on a more sort of standard career path would have built up to that point over time so i you know having come through an education route that that gave me opportunities um i was never really worried about when would i be able to retire and that and that sort of stuff so i wasn't really seeking out look if i was going to be really if i really wanted to be rich i probably would have gone into financial services earlier in my career or i would have started a business where i was the sole founder and had that started out 100 percent of the equity so um i think if the money is the biggest driver um then um yeah i don't know what advice i would give to somebody to, i'm not saying that's wrong but that because it's not wasn't my biggest driver mm. i think it might be quite hard for me to know how to find the energy to overcome some of the problems and be resilient mm. if really it's it's a lot of money that's pulling me through because that's not enough in my case i think it's a really important point you're bringing up here which you know the hundred plus podcasts i've actually done now I, this, this this hasn't come up enough which is the kind of concept of yeah, you can do it on your own, um, but there's a lot of fun and satisfaction in doing it with a team. And and yes, you might not make as much money, but the journey is more enjoyable. I guess maybe like the analogy of going on a bike ride on your own or going on a bike ride with lots of people, right? Different experiences. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We are social animals, you know. Some of us are introverted and some of us are extroverted. We do, we're different, but fundamentally we are social animals. And I think that if work is part of life, 
it's really important, I think, to, to have that. It's not just about colleagues. One of the things about being CEO now that I can't understand, I, don't, I really don't like, is there's only one CEO, and it's kind of in the organisational chart, it's top of the tree. So you're, you're kind of out on a limb. There's certain things that people won't necessarily talk to you about that, because you're the CEO. And there's certain things that I, it's not really fair for me to talk to anyone else about because I'm the CEO. That's my burden to carry. That's where non-execs can be, I think, is really important because they're the people that, as a CEO, you, you can go to when you need to kick an idea around or even just less self-esteem. But um, it, it's, it's, it's mostly not a lonely job at all if you build a company with the right people and the right culture. But occasionally, occasionally it can be in, 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 intensely intensely lonely. It'd be like that bike ride and you realise you've got a puncture and you're in the middle of nowhere and how the hell are you going to get home? It'd be... Yeah, some very occasionally it's a bit like yeah, that. Yeah, we're going to get into a lot of uh, bike riding analogies if we're not careful here, but it's it's, it's, it's good. It's my fault. It's my fault. <laughs> but I, I, I think when when building a business like you've built, it's um, do, what do you think you kind of got right, and what do you think you got wrong in the process? Do you do you spot anything obvious? Yeah, I, the, 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 kind of be nice. I wish I always wish I kept more of a diary, but then I'd never have the time to look at it because I think sometimes when you get things right you don't really notice it and um, all the things you get right but you but certainly you, you notice the things you got wrong most of mine are around people and there are a few people that i that i met or that i persuaded to join tales.com at just the right time and it and it there was a problem around the corner or an opportunity around the corner that i didn't know was or i had maybe did have enough experience of instinct was coming and higher. For example, Steve, our COO, joined us in 2016. Uh, if, if he hadn't joined at that time, the uh, control of our supply chain, upstream supply chain and inventory management and that kind of stuff, was about to start oscillating if it was, say, materials variance was plotted on a chart in terms of our stock keeping, out of control and really affecting our ability to supply customers or manage margin. Uh, and you can actually see on the charts when he started, the oscillations of, uh, of of control just then smoothing out. So that that, that would be one example. There's, there's plenty. I've got fortunate to have so many uh, talented colleagues, but uh, that Steve would definitely be one example of who came in at, at just the right time. And then others that I've been too late too late with, and 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 can see where we've um, we've we've had problems. So digital product is one area. So my own background isn't actually in 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 digital. Um, of software or, or technology and I didn't even properly understand what digital product was till far too late if, if I'm honest I mean I, I realized now looking back in the early days I was I was actually the closest thing we had to a product manager for example did, you know working with software engineers deciding how to, things should show up product designer probably uh, as well which I mean I'm the least qualified person to do it and it did show in, I think in our website when we now we have got a fantastic product team um, and uh, that was a big gap in our startup team uh, in, in early, early, early years, and I was too late to fill it really. But um, yeah, but, but, but by the way, it's working well. Better late than never. Better late than never, yeah. But I appreciate the openness about it. I think, you know, when you've got a successful business like you've got, I think people understanding, I think to me that's like a blind spot in business happens so often, doesn't it? You, you don't know what you don't know kind of thing. And how do you even go about recruiting for something you don't know? So how, how did you recruit to solve that problem? I think the, it, it's by talking to people around me and and whether it's colleagues who do who know enough to say I think we might have a gap here and then following up on that by speaking to somebody else who's got more expertise you know uh, resources like your 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 podcast super helpful to find stuff out but talking to other people who are in a similar role at a different company super helpful as well so CEOs of other early stage businesses we had a venture capital investor at that time uh, Octopus Ventures and you know very easy to access other CEOs of early stage businesses through that network um and the, and the the other one, and perhaps the main one, is using non-exec directors if you have them, and if you don't, the very early angel investors that you you might have. And if you haven't, uh, then my huge piece of advice for me is about making sure you, when you uh, set out to raise um, an angel investment, uh, if you have the, the luxury of choice, to definitely choose people who are going to bring knowledge and experience that uh, that, that bridges your own 
gaps as you may have them, and then even more so important in non-executive directors. So by talking, so let's take um, if I take uh, performance performance marketing for example. Not my own background in that being uh, not being in that. Then one of our non-executive directors was able to give me an awful lot of advice of what are the, what the what's the right team structure we have for that. What are the things I should be looking for and how well how well we're doing in that area. Um, and uh, and then when the, when the time came to hire into those roles. He would play could play a role in interviewing candidates, for example, and supporting me on that side of things. So I might have the, the, the skills and experience to bring someone in who's going to be great in a for their for their, for their problem solving abilities, for their management capabilities, for their uh, their personal values and ways of working. When it comes to the craft skill, then at least half the roles at Tesla.com, I, I really wouldn't know how to test if someone's a great product designer. Or um, so it's, you've got to have the other people that you can who are prepared to just help you out and uh, support with finding those great people once mm. they've helped. I think again, so many important points. I want to make sure my audience don't miss. Um, I, I think the um, being selective about your angel investors and being selective, very careful about the non-exec directors you bring on board to, who can bring values or, or skills uh, and value that you don't necessarily have. That's a good way of, I guess, um, also not having to... I, I, I built a digital agency, for example, and I didn't know when I was building the digital agency much about digital. So someone told me they knew digital. I just hired them, and it took me maybe six months to realise they didn't know that much. They just knew a little bit more than me. And if I if I followed your advice that you're talking about here and, and the investors or directors that I brought in knew that stuff, um, then I could have leaned on them to hire those people or help me hire those people at least. So a lot of big mistakes can be avoided by, by, um, by getting that skill set in, who's perhaps... In, involved or impartial and so really good advice um, I, I know as well just reading the history of the business that um you know graham and joe have since left the business how, how did how did that play out i mean of course joe it was joe's original idea right it was tv fair expert kind of concept so did, did did it not matter was it the right time you know what how does how does it play out when, when perhaps yeah. founders of businesses move on well it's well, I think one thing that's true in a, in any startup and certainly scale up is that it's constant change on pretty much every dimension, and hopefully that's because of growth. Um, but there's always new people. We've always had a, such a, a, since 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 we found product market fit in, in, in early 2015 and started scaling. Uh, there's always been a, a significant proportion of relatively new people that has meant the business was. The business is always different, culturally changing, ways of working changing, processes changing. So in the very early days, when when Joe moved on and then, and then Graham, that that was a lot of lot of change and a lot of turbulence, but actually it was quite normal. Um, so yeah, so Joe Joe, uh, incredibly creative guy, one of the most creative and entrepreneurial people in a in a sort of class, in, in, in what for for many people be the stereotypical entrepreneur uh, that I've that I've ever met, and uh, he. Um, the first year or so that we were building Tesla.com, he was really in his in his element, just solving problems, creating things. And he was so quick. He'd have an idea and he'd just make it happen. And there's, there's something there actually in a certain type of entrepreneur I think is incredibly successful, is idea to done being super quick. Because then actually you, you find out quickly whether it's going to work or not uh, before you've, you've, you've burned too much time. And Joe was certainly good at that. Graham was a different type of entrepreneur. He was about actually really knowing how to make that thing as successful as possible, and that takes a little bit, a little bit more time. Equally creative, uh, great at problem solving, really infectious with, from a leadership point of view, in terms of belief in, uh, in, 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 the, in, in the venture, in the idea, in the potential, um, and, uh, and and great bringing bringing people along. But after about a year of, of that golden period of inventing and creating and solving the problems. Uh, bringing something to market, we get into a place where we've got real customers, and <laughs> real customers haven't spent the year of blood, sweat, and tears trying to make this thing get this thing working, and they're deciding on the back of their first experience of, of it whether it's worth continuing with or not. And in our case, not enough of them did initially, uh, and the thing really wasn't working very well. And uh, and I've often described this period as like running back-to-back -back marathons. So you think you're launched, getting close to the launch date. Then you realise it's a false horizon because you know when you're ready and it pushes back and it's actually another marathon. So finally do launch, you're collapsing over the line and someone taps you on the shoulder and says, you've got another one to run, mate. And, and, and it just keeps going. And, and, and that was certainly the case. So, so we've got across the finish line of launch, not got product market fit, 
And it's another point maybe about choosing the right investors. That's hard enough to find the resilience to keep going. But when also you know there are people in, who are close to you, friends and family, investors you rely on, and some of the friends and family perhaps have put money in there that you really don't want them to lose. That's an added pressure that's really tough. There's, some, there's something about making, there's so much value when you have the right investors, but also being afford, able to afford and accepting they might lose everything they put in. Because you can't carry that burden as well as the burden of trying to get business to work. And, and you know, at the time it was incredibly painful, I think, looking back for, for Graham having, having to do that. But, but fortunately at that time, um, I, I was in the somewhat, um, well, what I think it thought then was about the best job in the business, really. I was like the number two, I was the COO. Uh, and I meant I had you know, enough reward, plenty of influence, a seat at the table. We were going, we, we, he and I doing a lot of the late nights figuring out how we're going to solve this. We got on well. But ultimately, I didn't have the sleepless nights, the loneliness, those moments of loneliness were really for, for, for Graham, and I knew that. But when, when the time came to decide, do, am I supportive of us closing this business or do I think that it's something worth fighting for to keep going, then the latter, the latter prevailed. And that's the first moment as well, actually, where but, you know, one of the first conversations I had about that was with my wife to say, look, if I, if I offer to step up at this point, then life's probably going to change. Ultimately, it might change for the better, but in the short term, it's going to be harder. It's going to be much more taxing again on, on me. It's already, you know, we've been running back-to-back marathons, business marathons. And, uh, yeah, it was definitely a, a joint decision to, 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 offer to offer to step up. So 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 I did, and we had a board meeting where we were either going to close the directors would vote to close the business or continue. We voted to, to um, well, the, the board couldn't make a decision actually, so we said so we go to the top 25 out of over 100 investors and decide, um, uh, get get their inputs whether they wanted to continue or not. And uh, uh, yeah, 24 out of the 25 voted to carry on, and that was November 2015. Um, and that's when, uh, that's, <laughs> that's when I took over as CEO, thinking at the time. I hope I can do this just for long enough and I'm good enough to do it for long enough to get it on the right track and then we can find a more appropriate CEO um, and uh, but sort of seven or so years later I'm still I'm still here and it's gone it's gone pretty well so that's that's that the big story for us anyway at tales.com of how we came right to the edge and uh, survived trying to not do dog analogies here but dog wagging the tail tail wagging the dog like, you know, does the money lead the decision? Does the decision get done, led by the management team? You know, does it, does the customers decide whether you stay in business or not? You know, like, does the market decide? It's an absolutely fascinating insight, by the way. And I want to thank you for sharing it because I don't think those stories are told enough. I think what people see is you, you started this business and it's, it's done really well. And they don't understand how close every business probably comes at some point to closure. And how um, one person believing in it can make all the difference, right? That w one last pitch, that one last push, that one last person stepping up can save a business. It, it can. Yeah. It can. With us, it started with one person believing in it, which was which was which, which was me. But I, but to be fair, that was only because, in terms of the, the wider management team, I was the only person that Graham Graham shared that with, and 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 pretty soon afterwards. It would not. We would not have carried on at that point if it was just me. It was actually the other people as well who who were part of that co-founding team who also believed as I did that it could work. And actually, the next few weeks before that shareholder meeting, where there was this sort of show of hands of, of, of the precipice, those few weeks they were like they were like The Apprentice, and there was no Alan Sugar, but there was this like incredible work ethic there was it was without the backbiting and the, and the, and the you know the, 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 the politics it was incredibly positive probably the most buzzing fulfilling scary anxious but uh, driven period of my whole life and, and, my, and my colleagues from that period would say would say it too and it really set us on a course culturally as a, as a team but it is still in our DNA at tales.com today now from those sort of 13 of us then over 300 of us now that, that that event was so powerful, it still shapes our culture and who, who we are today because we haven't lost sight of it. In fact, our, our values, our people values, the four of them we wrote down, three out of the four stem from that period and what we learned about what, 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 how good we can be when we're in that state of 
togetherness and purpose driven and, and, and so on. So, yeah. So, so although I was kind of the, had the, the the opportunity, the privilege to, to sort of spearhead that and be that person, um, if there was nothing, if there was nothing but no one behind me, no one standing with me and supporting and playing their role, uh, it, it definitely wouldn't have happened. And I, and I think, it, I mean, I just want to say again, actually, because it's it's something I do I do talk about. I don't talk about a lot because it's um, but I talk about the team. But I think it's really important for good, as you say, for your listeners to hear that it's not all roses necessarily, there are challenges. And I think what's true in the Tales.com story is everybody who made a decision at any point in that, whether it was what I felt about the business and more to the point what Graham felt about the business, they were making what they felt was the right decision based on the facts and the information at the time. And I think actually it could have gone very differently. Right? If we hadn't made a success of Tales.com, investors would have lost all their money. And Graham, we would have been right. The job of a CEO and a, the job of a board is to uh, protect the interests of shareholders. Now, I believe the way to do that is through uh, having an engaging and motivating a great team who look after customers and the shareholder value will follow. But it's easy to say that when it's going well, which it has been at, at Tales.com since, since early 2015. Um, it, when the, in those really dark moments, really dark moments where you really think it's not going to work and you're going to lose your investors' money, you have to make a decision. And sometimes even the braver decision is to decide not to plow on, and now's the time to stop. So whilst circumstances have shown that in that particular case I was right, I think actually in Graham's case there was a lot of courage and bravery there to make that to, to make that a tougher decision. That's that's also putting your ego and your pride on the line to say it's not working well enough. We need to we need to stop. I uh, well, you know, this insight is something again. I just don't hear talked about enough, and I think it's such an important one. I think personally, that's why I find it very hard to take investment in businesses these days because you end up making decisions that are around like not wanting to let those people down and you wanting them to not lose their money. But let's face it, if you're going to invest in a business, if you invest in anything, you've got to accept that you might lose your money. But I never wanted to lose money or friends. You know, and so that that balance of like, yes, the business might yeah. work if it was my own money, I'd risk it. But what you know, I, I can't risk other people's and, and that reputation and that, you know, I don't know, maybe Sunday lunch, dinner, dinner table conversation suddenly like remember that business where you lost all my money? You know, like it's um, it's very it gets very personal, which is why I think the culture of raising money also needs to be highlighted a bit. It's not always good to raise money. But if a business like yours, you needed to raise money, but it can also cause that friction, can't it? Where, you know, I know I know this is true in the VC world and for the VC listeners we have, we have a few, I know, forgive me for saying this, but sometimes they have they have to get the money out, right? There's, there's a four-year vest, four-year uh, four out cycle. It's just the way their funds yeah. work. So sometimes that can conflict with the business need to, you know, build up customer relationship and invest in that relationship regardless of profit over time. And then eventually you have a loyal client, right? So that, that conflict with finance is really interesting, I think. But having someone, um, I guess, who uh, who's raised the money, as you mentioned with Graham, and that, I think it is very brave to sometimes put it on the table, let's cut our losses, let's just accept we've lost two million US dollars and shut it. That is actually very hard to have that conversation. No one wants to admit defeat, right? Even if you're giving people their money back, it's still incredibly tough and actually takes a lot of bravery to even have that conversation. Um, but I'm I'm happy personally that you pushed through and made it happen, um, because my dogs loved your product, and I think you've uh, you probably helped a lot of pet owners and their pets live longer and and so on. So I'm glad you pushed through and managed to uh, get 25 people on your investment board to say yes. So on a personal level, I'm thankful. Um, but as an entrepreneurial story, it it, it really um, it is also very important to highlight these moments because I think it also can teach people about their structure in the early days and it can teach people about um, values and it can and it can also teach them how important it is to bring a good CEO in but when you stepped up I just wanted to be a fly on the wall at home um, you know w was it an easy conversation to have with your wife was it simply like you know oh look I trust you if you think it's a good business go ahead or was it a tough conversation to have that step up concept No, I think it lasted about five minutes. I remember sitting on the sofa explaining what had just, just happened and uh, saying, actually, and actually at that point I knew that there's, it was, Graham was in a tough spot. There was a lot, there's lots of shit going on and Joe leaving and all the rest of it. And I actually felt like probably I'll offer to step up for a few weeks, for a few months, 
just while he gets his head straight and then and then we'll figure it out. So I actually at that point more expected it would be temporary, mm. but still we needed to have a conversation. I remember very clearly she just said to me, well, look, you, you totally believe in this business. I see how much he believes that it, it can work. Uh, you can't give up now. Mm. The other thing, the other thing your story highlights... Oh, I'm sorry. It's a bit of a delay there. I've cut across you. I think well, the, well, the other thing that this story highlights that I want my audience listening to pick up on is someone can fall in love with your idea. A lot of people will say, oh, my idea, no one's going to love my idea as much as me. Right? That's not true. <laughs> when I listen to you, I feel like you fell in love with this idea more than Joe and Graham did by the end of it. You know, in a way, you know, like you. And so that hiring someone that can fall in love with your idea is possible. You're, you're proof of it. Am, am I, is it fair oh, to say yeah, that? For sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, Joe, uh, Joe, I don't know, uh, Graham would say himself, and that was part of the, the challenge when he was reflecting on it, was because he's not a dog, a dog person. He likes dogs, but he's not a dog person in the way that he's owned a dog. At that point, he used to joke that he'd never even fed a dog before. And I think you've really got to understand there's something very, very special about the the, the, the bond that we as humans are able to have with other animals. Couldn't agree more. Certainly not limited to dogs, but I think it's more common with dogs than, than probably any other animal, maybe, 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 maybe probably depths and number of them, um, of depths of relationship and number of people who have relationships with dogs. Anyway, so it's pretty powerful. You know that. Um, and and, uh, and Graham didn't, so that makes it a lot harder. Mm, that's very interesting point. I don't forget how much I learned at Innocent Drinks from the three founders at Innocent, Rich, John and Adam. And Adam actually, after that close, was, Adam was one of the people who joined our board. Um, and actually it was their support in me in that shareholders meeting because a couple of them were in the room. And when Graham and I had left the room, he apparently vouched for me. Of like, because no one knew who I was. Uh. <laughs> no one knew who I was, so... <laughs> <laughs> so, so they sort of stood up and said a few words, as I understand it, which was, I'm, I'm sure, had a quite a significant influence on the outcome of it. Because at that point in any business's life, you're betting on people more than anything else. A great team can can either make a bad idea work or turn it into something better. But uh, a crap team, they just screw up a good idea. Totally, yeah. Well, it's the, and I think Innocent Drinks have had you know their own stories like this, right? There's always moments where you know I think Airbnb story they almost were bankrupt. They didn't have the funding anymore. You know, the, the many and even in recent times they've had that sort of threat against them. You know that these businesses you have to find a way of pushing yeah. through, right? So it's uh, you know it's really kind of interesting. I, I, this might seem like a random question, but I was just interested in um, in, in trademarking because a lot of people that come up with a t- name mm. around a table. And they say, oh, no, why don't we call it Tails? I mean, first of all, you've got the URL, which, you know, 2013, getting a .com, that's, that's not easy to get that. But th- and then getting the name trademarked and stuff like that. How do you protect a name like Tails? Uh, well, I think, yeah, trademarking can be part of it. And uh, that's why our brand name is partly why our brand name is Tails.com. Oh, I see. So yeah. people will often refer to us to Tails, but it's Tails.com. And that's and it's, it's actually, even in 2013, it was becoming a little bit sort of passe or cliche to to be that to have the .com. But in order to have Tails, which of course is, is sort of, a, as well as being a, a, the happy part of a dog, expressive part of a dog, uh, it's also, uh, you know, part of the word tailored, which is the food that we make, mm. um, customised for each animal. So it was important, and it's a short URL, which is particularly important in those days. It's become more common now to have longer and longer ones and, and invent words. But um, those are the like, like last few years of trying to find those short, in that case, five-letter URLs. So we trademarked tails.com around the place. But actually, then, really, what 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 works? I think is um, it's about scale and recognition. So the the sooner you the, the sooner you can grow and make it make it really uh, make sure you own it and it's synonymous with what you are. The more people that use it, they um, it's like Google uh, at the end of the day, right? Google's not even a word. It's one of those things that's become synonymous yeah. with the product. So, but I know a lot of people. Um, I'm listening again. I, I did a survey recently with our listeners. A lot of them haven't trademarked their business idea. They think they've they've got the website address. They've got the limited company. They think they're safe, right? But without that yeah, trademark, yeah. it's it's more like someone saying no, you're passing you can, off. You definitely should. So tail tails wasn't wouldn't be trademarkable for us. Wasn't because it's just too generic a word. Yeah. Every time we say tails, yeah. you, we'd um, have to give you a pound. Think, you know, there's a business recently that was. No, that would, that would be bad. Every time, every time someone said the word tails, if they owned a dog, they'd have to give you a pound. That would be, uh, <laughs> that would be a good business, wouldn't it? Stop wagging your tail. Uh, yeah, around the world, there's a few. There's actually a. 
there was a business in the early days that was trading in Bahrain, it still is, called Tails.co. Right. Uh, and, uh, yeah, but uh, that hasn't really caused us any problem. Funnily enough, actually, we got, uh, Graham found, or managed to negotiate by the Tails.com URL, something like $20,000, uh, which is, and, and then, but we later ended up spending over £100,000 on Tail.com. Mm. Because people forgot to put the S on the end. That's yeah. sort of porn aggregator website. It was just awful. Oh. Uh, it's the most real business meetings I've ever been in and with, oh. with uh, Graham and Joe. The rest of the team in another sort of meeting room. What have we got on the screen? Well, Graham's saying, ah, you can't have some little Mrs. Miggins coming to buy some dog food for a for precious pet. She sees that because she missed the S. Yeah. So oh, eventually no. we gave in and bought Tail.com, but it cost us a lot more. And, 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 and I've been in those situations myself too. Like the price is very arbitrary, isn't it? It's like, uh, you know, how much do you want to charge? I don't know. Exactly. You can buy myself a Ferrari with that money. That'll do. (laughs) But uh, yeah, just but it's it's an important point actually, and it's uh, something I think when people are starting businesses, they they don't give enough consideration to. Considering actually, trademark itself is only about you know in the UK to trademark in the UK, which is good trademark where you operate. It's about two hundred and fifty pounds. You can do it online, but it also stops. It's not about you suing other people. It's also about them not pretending to be you, right? Especially I think with products like yours, where you don't want people passing themselves off as your product, right? So it's. Pretty, pretty important. But jumping back to the early days, I mean, how did you learn these skills? I mean, were, were your family entrepreneurial? Is it, is it, is that where this all comes from, or did you never, did you uh, see yourself as an entrepreneur growing up? Not my immediate family, but actually, my grandfather, on my father's side, he was um, a farmer and then a farmer's merchant in Northern Ireland. He died before I was born, and I later learned some really weird coincidences that he used to mix together different cattle feeds to create a blend that was uh, would suit the needs of a particular farmer's herd of cattle. That's exactly what we do at Tales.com. We blend together different kibbles to make a blend that's right for that particular dog. And uh, if only I'd, if only it, 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 I'd known sooner, this could have been a fantastic part of the founding story, but it's uh, clearly un- untrue. It's just a coincidence. <laughs> it was all Joe's idea, that side of it. Um, but I think, my, I think my grandfather on that side was entrepreneurial, but... Uh, was was certainly an entrepreneur. He's the first Ford dealer as well in Northern Ireland, apparently. Oh wow! Um, Big deal. But um, and he had a bicycle company called you know, Davidson Bicycles. I sort of do dream one day that maybe I'll have a, a bike company and uh, I'll resurrect that head badge that I've seen on an old poster somewhere that my dad showed me. But um, good idea. But yeah, it, I, I personally believe that an entrepreneurial I just I don't really consider myself an entrepreneur in all honesty because I didn't I didn't I had this hankering to finish university and get out I didn't want to do a master's I did bachelor's with a year in industry because I wanted to get into the world of work the world of business and I joined Unilever for the training and it was fantastic and if I and I, and I learned so much about myself about other people how we what makes us tick and some of the fundamentals around management and leadership in particular that stood me in, 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 in incredible standing um, and, and helped. But I got bored because of this entrepreneurial streak. I wanted to be more doing stuff and making things happen and that idea to action that Joe's so good at, being, doing, being able to do that a bit more rather than being sort of treacle of the large organisation. And on Rally International, which was absolutely transformational for, for me personally in terms of my trajectory in life, that was unlock of I can do I can I can take risks I can do what I want and joining le- leaving the, the the comfort of the large multinational that I liked you know joining Unison well then I was just immersed in entrepreneurialism whether it was the three founders true entrepreneurs all, all of them but they hired so many entrepreneurial people and it was yeah and I was like it just opened my eyes to different ways of thinking different ways of doing I've always learned most from the people that I'm around and never, never more so, I think, really, than, than Innocent Drinks. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that meant, and then when I, when I left Innocent, I was seven years, and was, I remember working with Graham and Joe in a flat in, in Richmond, in Kingston, opposite John Lewis, uh, on the river there where we started. I, um, I just remember th- like, just having these moments of thinking, this is, this is the best time I've ever had, you know, at work. This is just brilliant, this inventing and creating. I think my, what's entrepreneurial in me is a blend of enjoying doing something new, idea to action, and the commercial side of it. And I think different, there's lots of different types of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial people, but um, that's, that's my blend. Again, I, I really like this take on it, because, I mean, a lot of people like you know, entrepreneurs born or bred, and, and I think sometimes it is about the circumstances that you're you know who you're surrounded by there's no way you can work with the founders of innocent and not get infected 
by their way of thinking, right? So it, it's just, I mean, that's a good tip, I think, for anyone that wants to get into entrepreneurship, perhaps just go hang out with people that are that way inclined and you will pick up their skills and develop your own. But I mean, you, you, you to me sound like um, this, this really interesting example of like, not everybody has to go and be an entrepreneur and start something on their own. There is this kind of, I think, um, middle ground where you have business skills, you just have abilities and you work with people that maybe came up with the idea and then, but you take equity. See, that's one of the things I find interesting about your story. You had equity in instant drinks. So normally, head of supply chain in a business would not have equity. So was that their idea because they're entrepreneurial? Well, not, not in my normal. I don't know in my normal. So I think everybody, everybody at Tells.com has equity. Interesting. Every permanent employee. Still now, you know, after, even after our majority investment from, from Nestle a few years ago, we still make sure we preserve the employee share option pool mm. and we still award it to people when they start, when they're promoted uh, today. So I think it's really, really important, you know, because in a high change, high growth business and where you expect people to um, to bring their whole selves to work and to uh, maybe not care and have this quite level of passion that the founding team might have, but still put their heart and soul into it, that I think it's, it's right that they that they own a piece of it as well. So, and that, that was, I think that was the, must have been the mindset. I've never really talked to them about but the innocent, innocent founders. Uh, and uh, it's certainly our mindset at Tales.com. So I think, it, I think by the way, I think it should be normal. I think, I think it's something that should be normal. I agree. It's not normal. It should be though. And uh, my dog's barking, agreeing by the way. They're like, yep. Yeah. What about dogs? Do the dogs get yeah. some equity in tails.com? You know, like they're, uh, they're, they've, oh, they've yeah. stood up. They get, they, get, they get to try and yeah. plenty of. <laughs> yeah. They're like, you know, animal <laughs> farm, animal farm movement, food. animal farm movement right now. Like, hold on a minute, you know, without us, you don't have a business. So where's our, where's our, where's our slice of the pie as it were. So, but it's really, I think it's a really important point this again, for people listening, it's like, I actually think if you look at the businesses that think about giving their team equity in the platforms that they build, look at Google, look at the, all these successful platforms, they've all done that. And the ones that perhaps don't do as well, often they've kept all the equity for themselves. I, I bet there's a direct correlation. Certainly from a team building perspective, I think it really makes a difference. But it, it's nice to hear it, to be honest. I mean, it's uh, it's nice to hear that because everyone contributes to making a business work. And uh, But I think a lot of the time um, equity is held by by the, the few, the co-founders, for example, that's quite common. Uh, there's, there's other it's true, absolutely true. There's other factors as well. It's not, it's not, I don't know, it's not, you know, complete sort of altruism or philanthropy or, you know, yeah, there's, there's practical benefits. In the early days, it's quite hard from a cash flow point of view mm. to be able to afford all the people that you need to have on the team, especially the experience that they might need to bring. So actually, awarding them equity is part of the whole pie of, of, of reward. And yes, it's a riskier amount, but it could also, it may not come to nothing. In most cases, it will be worth nothing, but it could also be worth quite a lot. And, and so I think, it, it, I think that's a good example where it can actually help a business get through the um, challenging early days, bring in the right people when you it, can't actually afford them from a salary point of view. It, it's so um, true. It's so then, true. Uh, no, sorry, I'm cutting off because there's a slight delay. Sorry, I keep thinking you've stopped. Um, sorry. If you- uh, that's that's right. And the last, the last thing I would say on it as well, which is, again, not really that necessarily an altruistic or, or sort of wholly um, uh, sort of generous point, is actually when it comes, when it comes to the, a, a celebration of realising some value from that equity, you know, that sort of seal of achievement, of success, you've made it, um, whatever, to, what, to whatever extent it is, you want to be able to celebrate that. And in my mind, it's so much more fun to celebrate that with the colleagues who have been uh, you know, putting everything in it alongside me along the way, knowing that they've also shared in that, mm. than it would be to throw a massive party. But there always to be this kind of bit of a distance because actually there's been some pot of gold that some people have had a bit of and others haven't. And it all just, that I think can be incredibly damaging to culture and relationships. So I think there's so many reasons why it's important that uh, it can be important that everybody uh, that everybody shares in it, and in, in that case, it's uh, yeah. Think about the party at the end. Well, totally, <laughs> you don't I... want to be the only one buying all the beers, maybe. 
Yeah, and I, and then and then think about kind of the butterfly effect of like the innocent drinks folks having uh, the, the right mindset, and that gives you um, upside in, in the success of the business you help build for seven years, and then you take that money and you go on to do something else that's good for the world. You know, yeah, so it's it's that, that I, I, I love that, and I think the other thing, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, we speak on, on the purposeful project to maybe twenty twenty five entrepreneurs one on one every week, and and a lot of the time people can't start businesses because they don't have money. And actually, if equity yeah. is so valuable, uh, if you if you can have a you know if you can convince someone that that equity is going to be worth more than the salary, you can actually start. Yeah. I have started a business by simply giving someone equity, and they've said, "Look, you know that's fine. I'll work for six months for that equity, and then once the business starts working, then I'll take salary." So you can actually start a business with no money on the basis of what the business could be worth. Um, and, and so it's like, it's a good hack, actually. I want to say, I'm not sure I like the word anymore, but it's a good hack as well for people that don't have money you, to, to leverage equity if you can. And again, to your point, a lot of people say, oh, keep all the equity for yourself. Well, sure, there will be a very different type of party at the end, if there is one at all, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Enjoy that party sort of on yeah, your own. Yeah, on your own, right, riding your bike with your puncher, you know? Good luck with that. But um, but yeah, so, so do you think, um, I mean, on the entrepreneurial uh, process i mean just um conscious of time and, and i know we only have you for an hour and so just conscious when you when you're looking now at the business and there's a, there's a there's I, I was kind of fascinated by the fact that you guys had got investment from nestle and i think this might be a lesson in him in here that i want the audience to pick up on i i would say when i first see that company you think oh it's a competitor potentially to what you're doing and so a lot of people are fearful to go and talk to someone like nestle and get them as an investor because oh i might copy our idea and and so but yes. I, my, my experience has been the opposite personally and i feel like because you've taken test as an investor yours must be too but but a lot of the time these companies need uh, innovative new cultured focused businesses like yours to come into the fold as opposed to try and copy you so how, how did you feel about that relationship and, and i know it's sensitive because they're now your investor but but just interested in uh, in your view it, it, yeah good points interesting observations and it, it, and it, it built for over time a relationship in SA. and uh, you're absolutely right we, we, we did see them as a potential competitor it was may 2016 that we first uh, met them they invested actually that round, uh, we started that investment around september 17 but closed at april 18 and um in that first meeting mel our cfo uh, another person i work with innocent as well actually she she's just awesome and uh we went to that meeting we were remembering the stories from innocent days of when uh, the innocent fans had a meeting with uh, PepsiCo, so the, the, the story goes as we remembered it. And uh, the meeting at some point had included the words from PepsiCo of sell to us or we'll crush you, which is <laughs> kind of like the worst fear that you were talking about there of the big, what the big companies could, could theoretically do with their might and their muscle. Um, uh, but um, perhaps it's not so easy in practice if they don't actually have the skills and abilities and culture to do the actually the type of thing and the type of business and business model you are, but that that meeting we had with 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 Nestle or Perina at the time back in 2016, we, we were quite closed and guarded, and we, we were actually there to learn as much as we could and to recognise that one day they may well be the right investor for us because ultimately with Innocent and the investment they took from Coca Cola in the end have been a fantastic and still is success story. Um, uh, that partnership between the small, agile, entrepreneurial uh, business with a different business model and the large uh, corporate who's already incredibly successful and similar in that space, but not necessarily in that new business model, can be incredibly effective, as, as Innocent and, and, and the Coca-Cola company proved. So we had that in mind that it could be the right thing for Tesla.com. And we went to that meeting with that long-term sense and long-term um, idea but certainly wary. And when we finished giving a short overview of our business and, and how we'd come, not sort of giving away anything in terms of a, a special source and secrets and IP and even customer numbers and revenues and stuff, but we'd given a fairly vanilla overview. And I remember they were just really, it's like called Richard Watson, he's now, he's, he's now runs a confectionery business in the UK, I think. And he said, he said, well, you guys are absolutely the benchmark in, in, in direct consumer pet food. We think you're doing a fantastic job and we're really impressed. Would you like to hear a bit about us? So we said yes. And he started then with, well, we believe that life is better with pets. And so our role is to enrich the lives of pets and the people who love them. Uh, and we just finished crafting our little purpose statement at that time, which is to improve the lives of dogs and their owners, which is not quite as 
as uh, Natalie Wordsmith, perhaps because <laughs> we spent nothing on consultants and they probably spent about 100 grand on that one. Yeah, but, um, and the rest. Yeah. Uh, but it's the same thing. It's the same thing. So here we are yeah. with people who reflecting back at us our values is what we think is important in the character and personality of the type of people we want to be, have in our business and do business with. And they've set a purpose for their organization that's so close to ours. And it really was, if there's a sort of, sort of cheesy, but uh, you've, you've sort of warmed me up to it now, Simon, we've been talking for an hour. Yes. So if there's ever a business love at first sight, it kind of was there in that particular moment. The thing is, although nothing came of, of that for ages, I'd meet up with them quarterly. Then, then, then Richard moved on, handed over to his successor Callum. And Callum, in the end, was, played a key role in spearheading SA's investment in us, which is a way early stage in SA. They've made more and more early stage investments since, but that was so early for them. There was a lot of resistance internally as, 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 for them to persuade and to believe in us enough to get through. And I remember been pretty impressed actually with how they managed to swing that deal through at that time and the key thing as to why it worked was that that that, that direction of what we're here for what the business is about they got it and it was aligned to theirs there were good people that we would be working with and they believed as strongly as we did that what, what we were good at was different to the things that they were good at and the way that we would stay good as, at those things was by staying as separate as possible and now three years after they invested we're just as separate as, uh, as ever. I have less, uh, I have more autonomy than I had with venture capital and, and angel investors in the early days uh, and much more straightforward access to funding than, than future funding rounds would have been. Mm. Uh, but still the oversight where they as investors can see that the investments they're making and the autonomy that they're uh, continuing to, and well, actually, our investment agreement um, so specifies, but um, that they've they've taken the risk on, on giving was the right plan because the numbers are in a direction where they're, they're, they were incredibly um, they made the right, all the right decisions those years ago. So it's, it it's, was uh, yeah, it was a roadmap set a, a, a very successful worked example between Innocent and Coca Cola was our. Uh, inspiration and our uh, version one of the roadmap. Our relationship necessarily for us is version two, uh, and it's um, it's, it's worked incredibly well. Mm. Again, I think this isn't talked about enough as far as building a business concern. Okay, raising money is talked about quite a bit, I guess, and bootstrapping is talked about a lot. But I like the idea of working with the mm. right partners. In the end, it, to me, you know, you're working with people inside these brands, right? I mean, you, you can click with the people, and they're they're authentic in delivering that message that they cared about animals and they cared about the owners. You know, they cared about the same things that you cared about. Then, then after that, you know, once you have a common purpose. Then, then everything else is just paperwork, isn't it? You know, everything. If you both have the same yes. aim. Yeah. But the, the funny thing is, actually, in the case of Nestle, then we sort of those are the people that we dealt with on on reconstructing the deal, and and, and, and largely the same people that we we, we work with now and our quarterly investors and, and so on. But actually, in an organisation like that, what's really quite hard is there's a huge machine behind it in terms of whether it's M&A processes and lawyers and legal. They're not necessarily going to get it in the same way, and that was that was a really tough process to go through. But all I you think, need, all you, you know, need is one champion. I find that's my been my experience. I've done probably 50 deals with corporates, and uh, you know, once you've got that one champion, sounds like you had that too. Then 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 they'll push through all of that stuff, and thank God they do for those companies' sake. Right, because in the end they need to be innovative as well, right? And it's not it's not yeah. easy to do it internally for exactly the same reasons. So, um, but no, it's it's really great to see, and it's good to see a company backing, uh, you know, a, a, a new business, you know, a business like Nestle backing a backing a, an up and coming business as well. I think that's also good good kudos and good PR. Yeah, yeah. So, it was certainly at a stage where it could all have still, you know, got gone gone to pot and, and been worth nothing. So they they they. They took a big risk and uh, and uh, ultimately yeah deserve the, the the reward for that, which would be the you know the, the success that that, uh, that they'll they'll have to us come for I hope the rest of my lifetime and and beyond. Mm. As do you, James. You deserve it too. Well, look, there's loads of questions that I haven't had the chance to ask you, as so I'll have to have you back on. I wanted to ask you about luck, about how you innovate in today's world, about your education and how education plays out in thinking entrepreneurially. But I guess I'm going to I'm gonna have to come back to you another day on, on all of those questions because we've run out of time. I have one last question I'd like to air, end the podcast on. If you went back to your younger self and, and gave some advice, what would it be? 
Oh my God, so many things I'd love to go back and tell myself. So the, I think the fundamental thing when I when I think about this is to actually try and live in the moment a bit more and enjoy the moment, like chill out, basically. Enjoy the moment. Don't get too concerned about how you're going to shape the future to be what you want it to be, dream it to be. Uh, you'll be able to shape it as you go, just so enjoy the journey. I've, it's taken me longer in my life than I really would like to, to to start to learn. I would only say even now, I need to start to learn to enjoy the journey rather than being patient to get to the destination. So that's the advice I would give myself. Great advice. I wish someone had told me that at 20 instead. I was always thinking, oh, I'm, I'm not successful. I need more money. I need more this. I need more that, you know, instead of like just appreciating being 20, yeah. you know, like enjoying that moment yeah. or 21 as the person I'm looking at right in front of me has just turned, you know, enjoy, enjoy those moments. But um, James, again, thank you so much for giving us your time. Uh, I personally really enjoy chatting to you and I've learned quite a lot and I appreciate it. And yeah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thanks for you know putting together a great conversation. I really like what you're doing and, and helping other people who are trying to start businesses. We wouldn't have got where we were today if it wasn't from the help of others. And I think the way that you're making that available to so many people is brilliant. So thanks for giving me an opportunity to contribute. Appreciate it. Thank you.